0: West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James.
1: Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another brand new episode of the Geek at Arms podcast. I'm James, and with me are my good friends, Mike and Brian. Brian, how are you doing? Good, sir. I'm doing well. How are you? doing great. Mike, my friend, things going all right? Things are going okay. Glad to hear it. So, this is our second podcast of the new year, and this is also right around the time that we recorded our first episode last year. So, Geek at Arms, now a year old.
2: Wow. Like we're, I mean, we're almost toddlers.
0: Seriously. (laughs) That might be a stretch, you know. I think uh, James's mentality, at least, is not quite up to the toddler level yet.
1: In my defense, though, I play with twin boys all the time and a five-year-old girl. What's your excuse? Uh, my
2: Sunday Brain damage. Time? Yeah, there we go. I also work with three to fives during my Sunday school. So, um, yeah, uh, infantile humor is still very much a real—no, infantile humor is a professional skill.
1: And it's one that you could put on a job application to somewhere.
0: Well, you could certainly uh, get a good job as a visual effects artist with that on your resume.
1: (laughs) So, Brian, at your workplace, is there or is there not a ball pit?
0: There is not. There are an awful lot of toys everywhere, though. Has your office ever had a Nerf war? Uh, Muse hasn't. They used to do those at Eden until there was actually a... Before I got there, there was a story. They had these little squishy uh, stress balls, and they would have battles just flinging those at each other. And one day one of the guys grabbed this stress ball and he turns around and he just throws it as hard as he can at somebody. But there was somebody else standing in between them and he, as hard as he could from about three feet away just smacked this guy in the face. <laughs> and that was kind of the end of the, the Nerf Wars in that office.
1: See, I've always wanted to work in some place that has Nerf Wars. Mostly because I would go final option on it. You know, for the first time they held it, I'd come in there with a nice little Nerf pistol like everyone else does. Second time, I would come with the, I think they sell it at ThinkGeek, but it's like the Nerf Nukezilla, which has like a hundred foam darts coming out of a giant cylindrical orange foam bomb that you shoot it, (laughs) and as soon as it hits the ground, launches a hundred of these foam darts omnidirectionally
2: loading time has to be enormous, but so worth it.
1: (laughs) Yes, just so I can see everyone shooting, 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 and then I walk in and just k and watch everyone's face as it flies in the air and hits the ground, and they realize that coming into work today was a mistake.
2: There's got to be a Nerf version of Punisher, and I think that's it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of Nerf Wars and ball pits and getting hit in the face with squishy balls shall we head straight into geek out why not cool who wants to go first
2: I nominate you James Go
1: all
0: right go for it, James we're all democratic
1: here well uh, I'm happy to say that most of my geek out recently have been about the same things about continuing uh, practicing with my longsword or playing either Destiny or Mass Effect. This time, I got different stuff. So I'm going to be sending you a picture of this right now, but I got in a brand new knife in the mail, which is a lovely recreation of a medieval sax. Now we're waiting for the picture. And because podcast is an audio medium, I will be posting a picture of this onto the Geek at Arms Facebook page as well.
0: That is, pretty Well, that doesn't look like a saxophone at all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Brian, I will be pun you for that later. <laughs> so um, this was made by a gentleman whom I knew in Kansas who runs a metalworking company Kind of a homemade one. We know each other through the SCA, of course, and his metalworking shop is called Bunisher Metalworks. Hmm. Punisher But as a bunny. Oh bun- and You're complaining about my puns.
2: Oh
0: man.
1: Well, I've fought him in heavy combat, so he can pun all he wants. <laughs> It works on many levels because his coat of arms is a pair of black and white rabbits facing each other and last December my lady and I were at an event in Kansas uh, in the Kingdom of Kalantir called Chris Kinder. What makes it different from any other SCA event was that this was primarily a shopping event. Hmm. There was something like 30 vendors there selling everything from homespun yarn to small crossbows to heavy combat that goods and armor to knives and this gentleman who I know in the SCA his name is K and he had a selection of throwing axes and throwing knives there on sale and I saw them and I'm like man these are really nice and I said do you make any of these with a handle and he did he had one that was a display that he had with a handle on it and I asked him how much with the handle and it was only a small amount more than the throwing knife version so I paid him cash in hand right there for the sacks. I paid for shipping, and I also had him put part of my coat of arms on the blade. If you guys will look at the blade, oh yeah, you'll see mm-hmm. it has got a cross moline hammered onto the blade close to the ricasso. And all of that, putting the handle on it, the blade, the custom work, and shipping came out to be about 120 bucks.
2: That's, I mean, for a uh, for a handmade piece of work like that, yeah, that's a decent price.
1: Yeah, I just got it in the mail this past week. It taken him a little while longer to get it to me than he'd hoped, mostly because he does live in middle of Kansas, and his metal shop is not heated, and it kind of gets cold there, as yeah. all three of us can attest to.
2: Yeah, it gets every bit as cold as it does in New England. It doesn't snow there, but the ice is just crazy.
1: Yeah. So if uh, anyone listening has ever had the thought of having a throwing axe, a throwing knife, or... Something similar. Then go to Facebook. Go to Bunisher, B-U-N-I-S-H-E-R, Metalworks, and send him a message. Take a look at his uh, photo gallery. He's made some really cool stuff. And uh, the other thing that I've been geeking out to is in the same vein as my new sax. And that is I have been binging a TV show called Forged in Fire.
2: Oh, I think I've seen a couple of episodes
1: of that. Yeah. This is a show on the History Channel. I think this coming week, the first episode of Season 5 is going to air. It's a reality competition show, but it's different than a lot of these other ones that you see. There's not really a whole lot of the scripted drama that goes on. They invite four blacksmiths to their forge, and each blacksmith has an anvil, has a, a forge, has hammers, uh, there's access to a power hammer and other tools. They're given a billet of metal of different types, and sometimes they're given access to a scrap pile and told to scavenge for metal, and they're told to make a knife. And they're usually told that's it's gonna be used in a chop challenge or a slashing challenge or a stabbing challenge. They're given a few minutes to come up with a design, and then they're given three hours to turn that hunk of metal into a bare blade.
2: And sometimes they get some interesting challenges because the metal that they're working with is unconventional. Like, here are three ball bearings. Turn this into a knife. Yeah.
1: Other times they're given a table with pieces of small ball bearings, bicycle chain, metal nails, and other things. And they're supposed to fill them into a canister to weld together to make canister Damascus. So after the end of the first three hours, the competitors present their blades to a panel of judges. The usual cast is a gentleman named Jay Nielsen, and he's a he's a master smith with the American Bladesmith Society. Uh, there's a guy named David Baker. He's a Hollywood prop maker and is an authority on weapons history and weapon replication. And finally is Doug Merkida, who is an edged weapons specialist and a U.S. military contractor and martial arts instructor. And they've also had other guest judges who have come in who have also been master bladesmiths. And they'll judge the blade, you know, see how it looks, if it's got a warp, if it's got any problems. And one person will be eliminated.
2: And the loser has to fall upon his own sword. Yes. <laughs>
1: and the other three contestants eat him. No. <laughs> At the end of the first round, three are left, and then they are given another three hours to fix any problems with their blade and then put a handle on it, making it a complete weapon. At the end of that, the blades are put through a toughness test and a sharpness test. At the end of that, another person is eliminated, and the final two people are shown a weapon from history, and they are given five days in their home shops to recreate that weapon. Over the last... Fifty-seven episodes, I believe, spread over four seasons. Let me give you some examples of what these weapons have been: the Japanese katana, Viking battle axe, the Crusader sword, Elizabethan rapier, Roman gladius, the Moro chris, a war hammer, Scottish claymore, a spiked shield, a cutlass, a chatel, butterfly swords, a falcata, a boar spear, a Zweihander, cavalry saber, naginata. They've done Viking sword two-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to-to Times, deerhorn Knights, a talwar, a share, a sword breaker, a Dao gladiator scissor, a yatagan, a spadroon a tai chi sword, a crusader's sword, and Viking war axes.
2: I think I saw a chakra once. I'm not mistaken.
1: Yep, a chakra was in the first season, and. They have quite the variety of Smiths who have been on there, men and women, from as young as mid to late teens to as old as a gentleman in their 60s who have been doing this their entire life. And one contestant from this last season I actually have met. No kidding. They've had a handful of Smiths who have been in the SCA. And this last season, there's a gentleman who lives down in Houston. He's known as Master Crag. And he was in an episode where they did the gladiator scissor, and he won.
2: Very cool.
1: Yeah. I learned something I never knew about him. There have been some guys on there. You look at them, the way they kind of act and dress, and you're like, oh, yeah, this guy does medieval blacksmithing yeah there's that's not surprising at all.
2: There's a certain scent on those of us who travel in those circles
1: exactly we we recognize each other, and these guys were not hard to recognize at all. So he went on there in a normal shirt and his uh shop apron as tools, and as he was uh, telling a little bit about himself besides being a metal worker, he also talked about how he had a uh, degree in metallurgy and worked in nuclear power plants in disposing of hazardous and radioactive material. Wow, yeah, I was like, huh. Very cool. He made the joke that there's a lot of Homer Simpson t-shirts in his office. <laughs> so he did great. I mean, the whole entire episode, he was solid throughout it and went back to his shop and just created this beautiful, beautiful weapon that looked great and performed exceptionally.
2: Did he put any depleted uranium in the blade?
1: It did have a nice glow to it. it violated the Geneva Convention. <laughs> <laughs>
2: but it closed blue and orcs draw near. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he quenched it in the water, and the water just kept smoking. <laughs> <laughs> you can find some clips of the show on YouTube and in other places, but if you want to catch full episodes, you do have to catch it in reruns on the History Channel or subscribe to the History Channel in some way, shape, or form. But I recommend you do. It's a great hour of television. You learn a lot of really interesting things about blacksmithing, about blade making, and it's just it's enjoyable to watch.
2: This might sound bad. But I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway. When does that ever stop me? (laughs) Uh, The fact that it's been on the History Channel is what kind of made me dubious of any sort of historicity of any of the blacksmithing. Though, I mean, since the History Channel turned very quickly into the Alien Conspiracy Channel, among Mm -hmm. other things.
1: Aliens. If it's not aliens, it's pawn shops.
2: Yeah. (sighs) So with your experience, because you've had a little bit of experience blacksmithing, is that, is true. that correct?
1: True, true. A very good friend of mine, a gentleman who I've talked about before named Godwin, when I lived in San Antonio, I spent quite a bit of time with him in his forge, helping him out with various projects.
2: So this, uh, this passes the edutainment sniff test then? Very much. Okay.
1: You know, like you, when I saw that this was going to be on the History Channel, I was very dubious. And Then I watched an episode, and I thankfully found that most of my fears were unfounded. And even if there is some scripting to the show, like maybe the show shows someone is having more trouble in their forging and more trouble with their blade than they actually are, okay, you know it's what, drama. it's drama, you're doing it, I get it, fine, but you're not messing with the end result. So that's been me these last few weeks. Let's see.
0: Brian, what about you? Uh, Well, I think I mentioned last time that I'd been uh, starting to watch Babylon 5 again, that uh, online Go90 service has it up for free.
1: And if I ever forgot, uh, your various quotes on Facebook have reminded me instantly.
0: (laughs) My goal there, uh, the show is continuing to just be so relevant. I'm watching it again and thinking, people need to watch this. So I just started... Lifting some of the best speeches and quotes out of the show and posting them kind of without context, just this quote by Lando Malari or whatever, Mm -hmm. in hopes that eventually somebody's going to look up one of those names and say, oh, that's a TV show. Maybe I should watch it because I don't want to like start a conversation because then it's my opinion and people are saying, oh, well, you know, he's got an opinion. I would rather people watch and form their own opinions. So that's kind of my my way of peddling it right now. But the trouble that I'm having with it is, the last time I watched Babylon 5, I had the whole series on VHS and it's really bizarre, but the quality of the VHS tapes was far superior to the DVD transfer.
1: Interesting. Is it that the quality of the VHS tapes was better or with the DVD all All the all the bad makeup and the mid to early 90s special
0: effects, does it really just show how dated they are? No, it's actually worse. What they apparently did was, when they did the DVD transfer, they decided to, first of all, put it in widescreen, which it was not shot for widescreen. It was shot for the 4x3 SD. Oh, okay. And so they went back, and for what they could, they re-transferred it and got the HD. uh, They did shoot it full frame, but then they cropped it for, for broadcast. But they didn't have the effects, dissolves, any sort of that anything of that sort, in HD, in that 16 by 9 format. So what they did was they took their SD renders, or D1, and they just punched in on it so that it would fill the whole frame. And so when they went to DVD and then the the streaming format that they've got, they actually lost resolution on a lot of the show. And anything that was a composite shot, if you've got like a, a set extension or stars in the background, anything of that kind... It get so blurry and you can't even if it's more than a, a medium shot away you can't even tell people's faces anymore you have to kind of rely on their clothes to be able to tell who's who and it's so disappointing because I remember you know it being a kind of fantastic I mean it wasn't Firefly level of production quality it wasn't even Star Trek level of production quality but it was still a really nice-looking show and in their attempt to reformatted in this this widescreen format they just destroyed it and, and of course all of the the groundbreaking visual effects which you no know, they do definitely do not hold up over time but at the time considering this was a lot of space shots I mean they did more more spaceships than Star Trek ever did even in DS9 they didn't get to the level of what Babylon
1: 5 was no. doing different species of ships class of ships cruisers fighters shuttles all of it it was for someone who really loves spaceship design it was like a smorgasbord
2: and they also impressively did not perform aerodynamically
0: right that was a a big deal to Straczynski and their consultants that they were going to use plausible Newtonian physics ships could fly backwards and shoot and still shoot behind themselves without losing momentum but all of that, well, not all of it, but so much of that is lost because they decided, uh, okay, well, we're just going to punch in on this, and it's like 30% less pixels than you originally got. It's, it's awful. Yeah. Wow. Um, but the story is still fantastic. It's still very relevant, um, and it's got some of the best speeches I've ever
1: seen on TV. You know, every show's writing has its ups and downs, its high points, its low points. Mm -hmm. and Babylon 5 was no exception, but when the writers were dialed in, they really nailed it.
0: Yeah. Somewhere early in season three, it was hitting on all cylinders, and they only had a couple of stinkers in the whole of season three. Season one, they had a few shows, you're like, ugh, that's really not good. But by the time they got into it, it was... High, high quality all the way through. Completely agree.
2: And with a seasons one through four story arc, it's not like they were trying to figure out, oh, where are we going? Like, they seemed to know from episode one exactly where they were going to go with the mm-hmm. end of season four.
0: Yeah, and that was supposed to be through the end of season five, but they were afraid they were going to get canceled. And so they crammed all of season five into the end of season four. didn't quite work out fantastically, but at least they got the story told. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: And then they sprung it on him. Oh, we're going to go ahead and give you a season five.
2: No, they didn't. (laughs) No, no. That ended with season four. Fair enough. Okay. That's,
1: I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. I sorry, my brain got fried for a minute. I, don't know what, I said nothing. I said nothing.
2: Yeah, and there was no Matrix trilogy either. Just none. One film. Um,
1: <laughs> but one thing I enjoyed was that usually the person who gets the cool speeches, the main protagonist, the captain, the hero-looking figure, but they did a wonderful job. About spreading that around. So many of the cast and these wonderful characters had their moments, had their mm-hmm. spotlight to share their thoughts, their viewpoints, whether it was Londo, Shakar, Sheridan, or one of the others. I can remember many moments where they just had these wonderful, poignant speeches.
2: I mean, I just want to stop just a moment on this character, because the actor who portrayed him, I believe it was Peter... Jurassic. Jurassic, right. His performance on the TV screen was so deliciously dramatic, it it had me digging into his background. I'm like, you know, this guy is treating the TV screen like it's the stage. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's just a different flavor of acting, but it just seemed to work for Londo. And so I actually did some digging on the guy, and he really was uh, classically trained for the stage. And that really showed in his presentation of Lando. And I, I think that really just his embodiment of that character and just filling that character out with such personality and such performance really, really made that an attractive figure for me.
1: He took a character that at the beginning we all felt sure that we had him figured out. Here's the jovial, semi-bumbling ambassador who is sometimes slightly over his head. And by the end of it, I had more pity and respect for him.
2: Despite his vices.
1: Some of those even helped define him. Yeah, I, I would say even kind of because of his vices in some ways. It's interesting. <clears throat> the two I felt I had figured out were Londo and Jakar. One is the bumbling ambassador and the other one is going to be the occasional villain because that's how they kind of portrayed Jakar at the beginning. I respected both those characters, both those actors, because of the depth that they brought to the characters. They didn't let them just be written into a certain character type. They grew organically and they molded events and events molded them as the series went on. And it was incredible to watch. Serialized storytelling like you don't... Don't see a lot on TV, especially but especially, especially, especially not at that time period.
2: Yeah, absolutely. T- take a look at its contemporaries. I mean, you have Star Trek, which is—I mean, as much as I love Star Trek and especially love the Next Generation, it is in many ways painfully episodic. You can always mm-hmm. count on it beginning the next show right where we began uh, the show that you're watching now.
1: Yeah. You know, true, they turned into more serialized storytelling with Deep Space Nine, but
0: Brian, help me out. Which came first, Babylon 5 or Deep Space Nine? Deep Space Nine started before Babylon 5, but they didn't turn into a serialized arc until... B5 was in season three or so. Gotcha. So, hey, we can do this, and it's a sci fi show, and it works.
1: And if I remember correctly, I think that the studio fought the writers and the producers about the whole serialized storytelling because they thought they had the Star Trek formula figured out.
0: Yeah, you, they fought them on a lot of different areas yeah, in yeah, terms of that, that that's,
1: show. That's the Star Trek formula. You keep it standalone episodes. You do that week to week. Every once in a while, you do a two-parter or a two be continued but nothing before that. That's what the people like. That's what you stick to. And Deep Space Nine proved them wrong, but I'll bet you they took a, quite a few cues from Babylon 5.
0: Yeah, and Deep Space Nine didn't even really do it very well in some places. Like, right. it was near the end of the Dominion War, they had a nine-part episode. It was like, to be continued, eight times. Wasn't that, like, the last half of the last season? <laughs> I don't think it was at the very end. I think there was another season right after that. Okay. I don't remember for sure. But I just remember thinking, to be continued again? We already did this so many times.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. And a B5 point. had a couple of to be continued, but they were two-part episodes But you had the overall story arc mixed in with B-stories and the standalone stories that kept the pacing really nice through everything up until the last half of season four.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. So besides B-5
0: nostalgia, anything else? Well, it's tax time, so I've been kind of geeking out about my personal finance spreadsheets.
2: Not (laughs) as happy about it as you seem to be. Well,
0: you know, I did wind up having to pay quite a bit this year because of the payout I got at my previous apartment. My... Had just kind of spaced on that like, oh, wait, I'm gonna to have to pay taxes on that. But I'm in a, a fairly good position where that didn't really hurt me. It's a little bit disappointing to say, oh, there goes a $1,000, darn. But I just really enjoy plugging the numbers into the spreadsheet and watching the graphs change and yeah it, it's definitely nerdy but it's, it's you're one of, of those benefit. guys
1: that you would pass the like the ti-85 and ti-90 calculators on the racks at the store and look up at them <laughs> sigh and go one day
0: i still stop occasionally and look at those things and realize it's like oh wow like they got a new graphing calculator and then I realized, wait a minute, my phone does so much more. Why are they still selling these things?
2: Yeah, I don't know how they keep the market going.
0: I guess it's because in high school you're not allowed to have your phone in class, and so you still need to, it's like, why does he? this does not need to exist anymore. Yeah. But I still find myself stopping the electronics aisle and looking at them occasionally.
2: Yeah. I don't I, know why. I still get a lot of people looking at my line of uh, mimeograph machines. That business has actually been, still been going pretty well.
1: <laughs> yeah, but how can they justify the price tag? They still put on these oh that I don't know because uh, I, they, they've been around $14 from... worth of components
0: and you charged $120 for it yeah
1: exactly the price is not you would think that with the advance of technology and what you can do on your phone the price would go down but no it's either stayed the same or as you said gone up well there's like, a lot fewer of them now I guess, so, I, guess so. I mean like what to... <laughs> is the casing now made of rhodium or something
2: it's actually made of Toshiba phones
1: ah uh, okay <laughs> I'm reminded, though, of something my wife said. And she's like, where's the calculator? Why do you need it? I can't math. You're an accountant.
0: (laughs) And she just goes, yeah. There's a reason they invented adding machines. (laughs) So the accountants didn't have to math anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I got really interested actually in in personal finance a couple years ago when I saw this chart. I was I don't even remember what I was looking up, but I wound up on this website by a guy named J. L. Collins, and uh, he had a series for advice for investing in index funds. And he had this this little chart on there that says if you save this percentage of your income, this is how fast you can retire. And you know, I, my whole life I thought I'd been really doing really good following my dad's advice, save 10%. And I'm looking at this chart and 10% is the first entry Yeah. and you get down to 50% and you're like, retirement in 12 years. What? 12 (laughs) years? And I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, I'm making a decent amount of money right now and I'm living in 300 square foot apartment. I can do that. And so I started saving just like everything I could. I'm at 30% right now. I was at 50% for a year and a half or so. And watching those numbers climb surprisingly fast. And it's like, this is something that people need to know about. I mean, 10% is fine. I mean, if you want to work for 40 years, save 10% of your income and you'll retire in 40 years. But that doesn't necessarily need to be the way things work. And uh, Collins called this... uh, rapidly growing amount of money you're, and excuse my French, fu money, because when you have this amount of cash on hand and your boss tells you to do something that you're uncomfortable with, you can say, huh, I'm not going to. Yeah. And what's the worst he can do? He can fire you. It's like, that's okay. I can live for six, seven years on what I've got in my savings. Mm Mm-hmm. It's been kind of transformative about the way I look at my money and the way I, I think about the direction that my life's going and realizing I'm not necessarily going to have to be 65 before I'm in a position where I'm financially independent and can I can move back to Kansas and freelance visual effects. I know I'm not going to be making nearly as much uh, money or doing as exciting I'm stuff sorry. back there. You, you mispronounced Kansas.
1: That you mean you know, I mispronounced Texas. Yeah, right? Exactly. Yes, you mispronounced, <laughs> you mispronounced Texas there.
0: And looking at it like this and realizing, hey, I can save up this, this amount of money by saving half my income and realizing once I've done that, I can go anywhere I want and I don't have to worry about how am I going to make a living anymore and I can do what I want to do instead of what do I have to do to pay my bills.
2: Kaja and I had a different kind of money reckoning moment. It's one of those things that uh, I, I'm sure that you've heard legendary tales of the life of posh luxury that most people small congregation pastors have. <laughs> and then we had this moment where I was able to, I switched up my second job and um, <laughs> just traded the second and third job for, you know, a second job. And we were doing, you know, we're doing all right. You know, we, we at least weren't living with the stress of how am I going to juggle this medical bill and, and this dentistry bill. And then when my father-in-law passed, it was really kind of a... The sort of modeling of a parent that you never want to see because he had done things really smart and he made sure that his wife was taken care of when he passed. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of those things that we kind of started looking at each other like, wait a minute, if anybody, anything happens to either of us, we're kind of screwed. So what do we do in terms of you know, like life insurance in order to manage ourselves responsibly? And how do we you know redo our budget to make sure that, God forbid, the worst happens, that the other person and or our children are taken care of. So it's we we had kind of a different, first of all, different context and kind of a different money reckoning moment in terms of, well, what do we do to be responsible to each other and to our futures?
0: And how did that change the way you were living your lives?
2: Well, it's a a little bit of a tighten the belt budget. We're not putting as much into savings every month Mm -hmm. because when I got a new job, we continued living as though I were an adjunct. Which, if you want to talk about luxury, now there is, there is none. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was great teaching ethics and philosophy. Loved it. You cannot eat love. <laughs> and. So we just decided that we're going to make sure that we have some savings that will when our 20 year old vehicle dies we will be able to put a down payment on another one and so we continued making sure that we were putting things aside. We're not putting as much aside but we're still making sure that we can that we can live responsibly for our futures. And that's not something that I have always been able to take for granted. Like, how do I make it past next tax season is usually the way that I was living.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of things that you can do, even if you're already living on a shoestring budget. I mean, I had so much fat that I could trim. And that was even though I was living in a tiny apartment and I had a 10-year-old, 15, 17-year-old secondhand car, you know, there were still a lot of places that even I could trim that down. The thing I did was I moved within walking distance of work. Mm-hmm. So my 17-year-old car has gotten 1,000 miles in the last three years. Wow. Yeah, I bought two tanks of gas last year. Nice.
1: <laughs> and he had to eat ramen for a week after doing so.
0: <laughs> <And> <laughs> well, no, see, that's the point. I no longer have to eat ramen because I'm not filling up my
2: tank. Yeah. Well, no. And this is the. I mean, and this is coming from the guy who bikes to work three days a week, mm-hmm. if not more, and trains the rest. That's impressive.
1: Yeah. I'm yeah, a little I'm a little envious of you on that part, Brian. I have to drive around an airport to get to my job.
0: <laughs> oh geez. Yeah. And I lost ten pounds because I'm walking every day. Yeah. So, oh, so
1: nice. See, I tried walking yeah. to work once and I got arrested by the FAA. You walk <laughs> across the runway one time with a seven forty seven inbound. Excuse me, pedestrians have the right of way in all <laughs> all situations. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I live about four miles from work. I walked home from work once, and that was shortly before I started working there, just to feel out the route. And I also wanted Mm -hmm. to take one last day of, okay, I've got a day to myself, and I don't have kids. Let's go walk through the city. So we took, instead of a four-mile trip home, we kind of took a six, but still. Yeah, walking to work is, it's hard to make it during, in any sort of timely fashion when it's four miles.
0: Well, yeah, four miles is a, is a bit long for
1: walking. Yeah. I'm two miles from work. You see, you also have to keep in mind location is everything. Boston, in various times of year, is much different than <laughs> California. <laughs> Los Angeles. Yeah, from Los Angeles, where <laughs> Brian lives. These are two completely separate beasts we're talking about.
0: Yeah, it, I thought I was just so miserable, and it was the worst thing ever when it rained on me on my way to work shut your mouth
2: <laughs> it's march just and we're up. still shoveling
0: yeah yeah and then i get on facebook and i look at mike's status updates and i'm like okay i don't have any room to complain i'm just damp <laughs>
1: I will put away the feeling sad for myself, and instead <laughs> we'll replace it with a sense of smugness.
2: The, it, the, right. The days that it's the worst is when you hear the, the meteorologist say, okay, and here's where we're going to see the rain-snow line kind of shift back and forth. Like, oh, so it's going to snow, then it's going to rain on it, and then it's going to snow, and then rain a little bit more. So... Every shovel full yeah. is about...
0: Ice lasagna?
2: Well, no, it's not even that. It, if it froze, that would at least be something. I could just dump a bunch of salt on it. But when you have... Every shovel full is a slushy, And so every <laughs> shovel is about 15 pounds heavier than it should be.
1: A science team from the University of Cambridge actually has been assigned to the Boston area. They're going to get a core sample from the layers of ice and slush and see they can <laughs> figure out, one, how far back it started and how long it's going to last.
2: I'm not
0: kidding. What, what was uh, life like back in the 1960s <laughs> when the snowfall started?
2: <laughs> the, you, you joke about that, but there was a winter where it snowed so much. That, I mean, we have these snow farms that what we do is, if it ever gets unmanageable, what they do is they'll cart the snow around to some other place into a snow farm, like a piece of land that hasn't been used for anything else, and just let it melt. There's one time it made it to July 7th.
1: We're putting the snow out to pasture where it can live its days in peace.
2: I mean, you say in peace, but the stuff that melts out of there is just
1: Yeah, I can imagine. I can remember, especially in both Kansas and Colorado, where like in large parking lots where they would just shovel it to the side and in big, big piles and it's all black and gray and nasty. And then when it turns into March and it all finally begins to melt and it just looks gross.
2: See, the thing is, like, the stuff that melts out of there, it gets me thinking, like, how did that get there?
1: There's a whole deer, a whole
2: one, right in the middle of the snow. Well, it kind of makes me want to go on Amazon and just buy something really bizarre and just shove it in a snowbank. (laughs) (laughs) Example? No.
1: Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> fair
0: enough. You know, beyond the uh, tax season stuff, and I think this was something that we were going to talk about a little while later, I mentioned that I'd watched Veronica Mars, and i also been a big fan of Arrow since it started. Mm-hmm. And to that, I've added Black Lightning and then the Black Panther movie. And so I've been kind of feeling this theme in my television and movie watching of exploring social divisions, race politics a little bit, but mostly the, the social class stuff. Veronica Mars is very much the, the setting is a town in which there is no middle class. You have the super rich and you have the very low-income people who are their servants, essentially. And Veronica herself kind of skates in between these two, these two worlds and is exposed to the prejudice of the very rich people toward low-income, the, the Mexicans and the, the African-Americans that are in that community. And trying to balance, okay, well, I'm friends with the leader of the local bicycle gang, but I'm also the girlfriend of the son of the software mogul. And so that really threw the differences between those two societies into sharp contrast. And Black Lightning kind of does the same thing, where the the central character is a very upstanding member of his community, and he has to deal with the encroaching of the gangs upon the school where he's a principal and dealing with the, the crime that comes with that divide between low and high income. Arrow started that way, where you had the billionaire who was fighting for the the disadvantaged. I think they kind of lost their way the last couple of seasons where... Ollie's not really thinking about the downtrodden anymore. He's all about the supervillain of the week. And they touched on that a little bit in in Black Panther also, although that was a little bit more about the race and less about necessarily social class, although Mm -hmm. that's still there to some degree. I
2: I would argue that in, in many cases with what they're talking about in Black Panther, there is not always this distinction between social class and race.
1: By the way, everyone, the following does contain spoilers, so if you have not seen Black Panther, you might want to skip ahead in the podcast to 46 minutes and 10 seconds.
2: I mean, when it's set in Oakland, California, there are certain structures that are in place that in many ways marry some of those factors.
0: Right. The villain character of Killmonger, though, comes from that low income and winds up, well, I won't give spoilers, but he winds up in another place and... There wasn't really much made of his social mobility as much as was made of, I'm a black man and I'm angry about it.
2: And it's it's one of those things that you talk about social class and race structures. I mean, we have to be honest with the material that we're coming with. And, I mean, what was the impetus for X-Men? I mean, when Stan Lee was writing these books there was the question of race and class. And so it's the books come from a social dynamic. Now, how true they stay to it, it really depends on its iteration. But Black Panther was very much a social class and race driven movie from every element of its plot. And I would say that they have some... Here's the thing is, I'm, what I'm really afraid of in this podcast is is spoilers. <laughs> so... The thing with Black Panther is, I mean, first of all, we are, we are talking about something that is, at its very essence, uh, driven by global race issues. Um, mm-hmm. When we talk about Western Europe and its encounters with Africa, colonialism and imperialism did terrible things to the lines that we drew in Africa and things that, that Western civilization did to the continent. And the movie is based on that. And now you have this one country that is living large in quiet, and now they are faced with an ethical dilemma that we've talked about in some of even our ethics of just war concepts in my ethics classes in college. Some of these issues are, when is it just to wage a humanitarian war? Uh, When do we intervene? When? these issues become so outrageous that something must be done for the sake of our fellow human beings. And even the villain is asking this ethical question, why do we not interfere with this cycle of oppression? And you also have another ethical dynamic of, we should not wage war. We are living an isolationist society where we draw the line in our traditions and our ethics, we do not get involved in external conflicts and we do not bring conflicts to us. There are problems with both of these ethical models. And really the way that these play out is not the question of which of these ethical paradigms is just and which one is unjust, but it really is a matter of means. You really do have the Professor X and Magneto coming to the stage again, granted in a very different dynamic. You have Kill... I almost said Killgrave. <laughs> Killmonger?
1: Yes. Killmonger,
2: yes. Killmonger, who wanted to write the scales of justice at any cost, and he was ruthless to those who were around him, and he wanted to eliminate any possible succession after him. These are what made him a villain. So I don't think it's a matter of their ethical insights. I think it's or their ethical positions. It's a matter of their means to these ends, which put them at odds with each other. And in the end, they arrive at a third conclusion that, no, we should intervene, but we should do it in this way.
0: And I think that is that is definitely one of the things that made him a more compelling villain. On some level, you have to realize the guy's got a point. I may not agree with the way he goes about making a change, but Regicide. the change that he's after is not necessarily a bad thing.
1: Yeah. The concept of what he wants to do is good, but the means of what he wants to do it is flawed. Mm. And and in his case, really very flawed.
0: Through the, the ramifications of, okay, well, if we knock out all of the, the oppressors, somebody's going to fill that vacuum. He didn't think that far ahead.
1: <laughs> no. But then again, the character has shown himself to be tactical. He is very much a soldier. But... I kind of saw it as that you get beyond thinking tactically for himself, you know, then that's where his thinking becomes flawed.
2: Well, I think that the, the CIA agent in the film hit the nail right on the head is that he's been trained to think like us. He's been trained to think like the CIA. You go in and you destabilize. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think that's one of the things that was kind of wrong with the film. They really should not have had a CIA good guy. In this film, Um, because any time you've had the CIA intervening in Africa, it is not meant good things for Mm -hmm. uh, for the continent. I mean, I
1: narratively speaking from a Marvel standpoint, it should have been an agent agent of of shield. S.H.I.E.L.D. Yes, they very much wrote themselves out of several compelling concepts and uses of the organization when they went through the whole, oh, S.H.I.E.L.D. is HYDRA and it's going to be gutted like they did in Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It would have fit the universe and it would have been more... Tasteful? More tasteful and benign if Martin, what is his name, Martin Freeman?
2: Yeah. Yes. Probably <laughs> yes. lovable Arthur Dent.
1: Martin Freeman, a agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. instead of the CIA.
0: Or at the very least, they might have put a thread in there where he is in a place where he's got to apologize for what the CIA has done in the past. Yeah.
1: And also, we could have gotten a great scene after the credits of he walks in his office and there's Nick Fury going, what were you doing in Wakanda?
2: (laughs) Oh. You know, if we had Nick Fury coming, you know what? That would have been the after credits. You know, as he's filling out his report to the CIA, Nick Fury says, sorry, son, you're coming with me.
1: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. That would have been great.
2: I will say this, that as as much as I was a little uncomfortable with the CIA involvement, they at least played a character that was really seeking out American national interest to the end of the film. Yeah, he benefited from getting his butt saved, but when he was chasing down those jets, And he was shooting down all of the vibranium that was being exported. I could not see that any other way than he's pulling the trigger because having the vibranium...
1: The the vibranium weapons?
2: ...would not be in the U.S. best interest. No.
1: And I said something, this goes back to the character and and who he is and, and who he represents, what organization, and I said this to my wife. One, it shouldn't have been CIA. Two, I love Martin Freeman, but he should not have been in this movie. It should have been Agent Phil Coulson.
2: I think he's too high profile.
1: I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) It should have been S.H.I.E.L.D. He would have been great for it, and it would insert him back from the small screen into the big screen where I think he belongs.
2: Makes
0: sense.
1: That's purely wish fulfillment. There, yeah. purely wish fulfillment.
0: Before we leave this topic, did anybody else find themselves wishing that the entire movie had been about Shuri instead of about T'Challa?
1: My hand's kind of partial up on that one. Just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a, a bit, yeah,
0: a bit. The character and the actress both were just fantastic. And she I wish was there had great.
1: Been a lot more of her. This is another example of Marvel creating wonderful female characters that need more screen time. Yeah. And supposedly, I don't know if this is official or not, but they're writing her. This is supposed to be a character who is even smarter than Tony Stark. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: They did a comic tie-in to both the Black Panther and Infinity War, which comes out soon. It's supposed to be official canon, and it deals with, at the last end credits scene, we see James Barnes, we see Bucky Barnes, and looking a lot more peaceful than we have ever seen him.
2: See, I didn't stay through the credits because it was late, I need to get my okay. 12-year-old to bed.
1: You see Shuri coming out of a hut in a small village, and you also see Bucky Barnes walk out of it. Really? He's just got a slip over what remained of his arm. He's wearing local tribal clothing, and he's just looking out over a small lake, and they talk. And it's a very peaceful moment, and you just kind of get this sense that, that maybe he's better. Mm. And the comic ties into that, where it has T'Challa talking to his sister, and she says that she was able to come up with a fix and was able to remove all of the Hydra brainwashing from his head.
2: That's really benevolent.
1: It was part of another project that they were working on, but she found an application for it with Bucky. And something to the point of, it's like, oh yeah, it was easy. It took me five minutes. <laughs> T'Challa said, well, even if it didn't work for this other project, at least we were able
0: to bring Mr. Barnes some peace. Mm. So, Mike, what have you been geeking out about since we spent so much time on me?
2: Well, you may or may not have caught that I saw Black Panther.
0: <laughs>
1: I was questioning that the entire time.
2: I know. I, I, you know, I just read a really good synopsis, and uh, it, <laughs> it even told me how to feel and what to think, so it was great. <laughs> (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I saw Black Panther last night. Let's see, what else have I been geeking out to? There's been a lot of things going on. I took another visit to the Reality Zombies, and we're talking upgrades. Really? Yeah. He let me try on the headset and got to see some of the new weapons that they've added. They are adding a rifle soon, and I was talking with him. They are going to be redoing—no, not going to be. They are currently redoing their entire game from the ground up so that it can be co-op multiplayer.
1: Now we're talking.
2: Right. So, yeah, it, it was one of those things where I was passing by the mall, and I'm like, uh, he said, try this thing on. we are going to do this. He's she's like, how much does it cost? Like, it's my treat. This is what's happening. <laughs> oh, I'm very like, cool. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, no, no, that price is right. <laughs> Let's do this. And so there's going to be some new things added. So there's the Reality Zombies thing is really growing, at least in terms of its current location, and they're still looking at doing some other locations. There's also something coming up next month, super looking forward to, which is, of course, PAX East.
1: Yeah. Have you got your ticket yet?
2: By the time the editing is done, it will be in my hot little hands. Awesome. This year, we're doing something a little bit different. It's not just one ticket. There are two tickets. Because I think that my eldest daughter is old enough to go to PAX.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. I'm glad that she, one, that she's got the interest and that she is wanting to go with dad to this.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things that it's going to be a different world. Anything that you do with your kids... I think we've talked about this with the table games thing. You're never just enjoying your hobby. You're now parent. Mm -hmm. And if you're ever taking a friend to a convention and you've been and they haven't, there's also a thing that you're kind of like, okay, what what do you want to do? Like, I've done this. What's the experience through your eyes? So we're going to see what that looks like when we're parenting and doing this thing through her eyes. So, yeah, really looking forward to that. I did since PAX is like my only me day. Like, I don't take time for myself because I'm father, provider, husband, father again, and... Pastor and all kinds of things. I also bought a Friday ticket. I'm going to take a vacation day at work, and I'm just going to run the convention hall for for my day to myself.
1: Cool. Is there any swag that you're hoping to get?
2: You know, I don't I don't pin my expectations on swag because there are sometimes there are things that are there, and I want to pick them up, and I do. In terms of freebies, you really have to work for the freebies, so I don't.
1: I guess when I say swag, I don't think like freebies. I guess freebies is the more acceptable term that is generally thought of when you think of swag. But uh, when I think swag, I think it's like something cool that you can usually only get there or is more readily available at a convention like this that you're wanting to buy.
2: A hug from the developers at Looney Labs. No. Um,
1: <laughs> Wait, those, is, is that the 29.95 basic package, which is just a one quick one pat on the back and you go, the $60 deluxe package, which is a two pat and a squeeze, or the El Presidente package, which includes three pats, a long squeeze, a circular back rub, and an arm around the shoulder wave at the camera?
2: You know, a one-arm hug from both of them, simultaneous, usually it's just a DNA cheek swab, and they say, it's for the development of. Our future. <laughs> uh, no, in all honesty, I do save up some. I do dog-ear some money from Christmas, and I set that aside so that I know that I'll have something to spend. If I see something that comes up and I try a game that I really think is really my flavor, but I tend to go in and try not to set my heart on too much, and, you know, if I see something that is really me, I'll pick it up, and I tell myself I am not going to buy another set of dice, (laughs) and then I buy
1: dice. But why lie to yourself at this point? I mean, really?
2: You should see my dice box.
1: Is it a dice box or a dice hope chest?
2: Uh, it is a dice chest. Yeah, it's it's kind of a largest jewelry box in the shape of a pirate treasure chest. and
1: Very appropriate.
2: It, it's really, yeah, it's getting really hard to thumb through it and pick out an actual seven dice set since there's... Uh, of them. Why am I admitting this over the open (laughs) air?
1: No, you still don't have enough. I'm sorry. Unless you have to remind yourself to use your legs when lifting up your dice chest, that's not enough.
2: Don't you judge me, James! (laughs) Mike's like, I
1: have to get a back brace just to put it on the table.
2: Do you know how hard it is to get a forklift in the house?
0: (laughs) That explains the pulleys on your ceiling.
2: <laughs>
0: I for house plants, so I didn't know.
1: Like, what's with the three-point hitch over your dinner table? But dice and swag aside, is there anything in particular? To- any panels you're wanting to go to, any game companies or people that you're really looking forward to this time around?
2: This time around, not especially. I took a quick peek at the schedule, and there are a few things that look interesting. The one thing that looked absolutely fabulous, The Psychology of the Legend of Zelda, is unfortunately running on Sunday, so I will not be visiting that one. Uh, But I haven't really had time to comb through the schedule since I just took a look at it. Uh, But last night, I think, is the first time I actually really looked at it. So I'll be hammering that out over the next week. And, you know, really, I'm just going to open it up to the youngster and say, is there anything here that they're talking about that you're interested in hearing about? Because if you have any sort of discomfort with crowds, you want to break it up and put some panels in there. And, you know, she she generally does crowds all right, but there's such a thing as too many people. And I love people. And sometimes I have to come up onto mm-hmm. the walkways for, as I call it, coming up for air.
1: Yeah, that's fair. And I bet that she's going to lead you to some surprises that you didn't even expect.
2: I really hope so. Uh, I'm expecting that. Most people that I go with, if they have an agenda and I do not, I get exposed to some things that I wind up finding fascinating.
1: Just remember, if that doesn't happen, on the ride home, you can't look at her and go, well, dear, that was a tremendous disappointment. I expected more of you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Funny, we kind of did an experience at MIT, of all places, just last night, where we went to a junior's engineering competition, where you get into teams and they give you engineering challenges. And it wasn't that we looked at each other and said that they were a disappointment. It's We kind of looked at each other and said, you know, I think that MIT, as brilliant as the place is, had the engineering challenges thought through. But in terms of, I don't know, instead of a couple of undergrad engineering students, maybe put a child educator in there somewhere in the mix. Ah, Because uh, it was, you know, it was great. The schedule was pristine in its Excel spreadsheet, <laughs> and everybody got through the rooms, except you didn't really think about the fact that she had 8 to 11-year-olds there for four hours and really collectively had about, oh, 45 minutes worth of stuff to do.
1: Yeah, not good planning.
2: Yeah, but it has a lot of potential. I look forward to what they're doing with that in future years. Uh, The last thing I wanted to mention in terms of my geek out... Though there have been many things that I have been doing, I am still reading through the Italian tradition as it's been translated in English, and I'm over halfway through. Cool. I finished Fabrice, and that is a fascinating, fascinating uh, piece of work in terms of its strategy of shutting out offensive lines before your blades even make contact with each other. And I'm going to keep it short because. That could be an hour lecture, and uh, <laughs> this is not the venue.
0: No.
1: That's the uh, the Sword at Arms podcast, which will be starting soon. So now that you've finished, Fabrice, do you have your eyes on another work?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's not even a question. The question no, is I know. I know, I know the work? answer to the question, <laughs> but I'm
1: setting you up for our listeners.
2: I know, but I had to put the value judgment in there. Now, um, <laughs> yeah, the next thing that I'm going to be moving on to is Giganti's second book, I believe that one was 1609, and it was actually accused of plagiarizing Fabrice in a couple of sections. Really? Yes. Now, whether those accusations are true or not, I do not know. I have not even read the work. But he said that he was writing his second book before he had published his first book. So he was writing the first book, said, hey, I'm going to talk about this in a future book. So we know that he had more planned. But as later versions of Giganti surfaced, especially as later versions of different works and plagiarisms of both of their works arose, there was some question and some accusation that Giganti plagiarized Fabrice in his his second work. Gotcha. So we're going to see what the similarities are and I'm sure, again, that would be another set of lectures whether he did or did not actually plagiarize or whether these are just commonalities that arose in Italian fencing.
1: Now, I've got one that I'm looking forward to myself. I'm still working my way through Guy Windsor's longsword book focusing on Fiore, but next month a brand new book is coming out from the Royal Armories of all places and Mike, I know you know about this, the Medieval Art of Swordsmanship, Royal Armories MS-133. And for people who are like, okay, MS-133, what is that? Uh, That is the oldest known manual of swordsmanship in Western canon. It's dated to the year 1310, and it is just a beautiful work of late medieval art and this book that they're coming out with has been edited by Jeffrey Forging. He's done several books on medieval sword fighting. He's been a curator of arms and armor and medieval art at the Worcester Art Museum in Massachusetts. He's an adjunct professor. This is the guy who you want to do a sword fighting book
2: actually pretty well known, especially around this area, since he's relatively local. He was one of the scholars that was at work at the Higgins Armory Museum, may God rest its metallic soul. And uh, he's done previous translations of MS-133, and they're extremely hard to get, but now that they have this new edition coming out, this is super exciting.
1: Yeah, you can pre-order it on the Royal Armory's website, and it's 50 pounds, which comes out to about 70 US.
2: On Amazon, they have it listed for a little cheaper. Really? Yeah, they do indeed. I've got that on my watch list.
1: Cool. It's slated to come out, I believe, April of this year. So hopefully in a future episode, you and I can both get a copy and we can dig through it while Brian cues up his next episode of Babylon 5 in the background.
2: I do want to put one addendum into one of the things that you said. You named it as the earliest existing Western book. Yeah. This book actually predates any Eastern manuscripts. Really? That is the information that I have, that it is the world's oldest fight book. Cool. The world's oldest extant fight book. Okay. So we can find something older. I challenge you listeners, to bring me an older manuscript.
1: Yeah. So that wraps it up for Geek Out. And a little while ago, we had been talking about the joys and the wonders of financing and monetary statistics. And <laughs> I laugh a minute, but it does lead me to something I want to talk to you guys about. We each have our geeky hobbies, but here's a question for you. How much a month do you think you spend on them?
2: Wait, do you say think or no? Because these are...
1: Okay, if you actually have that number figured out, let me know. How much do you spend a month on your geeky hobbies?
2: Well, uh, I think that this all goes back to the 2001 Fraley Accord, where (laughs) uh, we had worked out a mutually agreed dollar sign that was amended to account for inflation in 2009. And you laugh, but it's also true. When we first got married, it's one of the things that my wife and I went to premarital counseling, which side thing, but I would recommend to anyone because it's a great way to prepare yourself or even revisit things that are what, part of a relationship. What
1: was this accord in response to the Kaja concordant, which basically could be summed up as do chill out?
2: You know what? The great thing about that is that we never even had an issue that how much we spent on things for ourselves and our interests was never an issue because it was always our private money before we mingled our stuff. But when we came into an agreement, we said, okay, do you know what? Since we don't have a whole heck of a lot of money, let's pick a number. And in accordance with that number, that person can spend that much a month on bubble gum if they wanted to. I mean, spend all of that on something absolutely stupid and frivolous. Take it and give it to a friend if you want. The other person, unless it's something damaging, like, I bought a bottle of District 9. Like, wait, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, they have no say over whether or not they think that's wise or not because it's what we call our monthly discretional. At the time it was $20 and we've just kind of adjusted for inflation. Any funds that were given for birthdays or Christmas also gets lumped into that discretional. So, that's pretty much what we stuck to. We adjusted for inflation at one point, and it's a modest sum, but you know, at least we know that nobody's going crazy with their own geeky interest. Now, that does get adjusted if we both join hands in a ceremony and say, yes, oh, yes, we will be buying Betrayal on House on a Hill. This does not count, <laughs> or something to that effect. Or if we're going you know, to say, you know, let's all go to the movies, which rarely happens. But those expenditures, when we come to mutual agreement, saying, no, the numbers work out. We'll do this. Um, it won't count.
0: Gotcha. Ryan, what about you? Well, I don't actually spend all that much. I had a uh, an addiction to magic The gathering when I was in college that cost me way too much money and my grade point average. <laughs> and ever since then, I have really, I think, three or four times before I buy anything hobby-related. I divested myself of most of my role-playing manuals uh, when I started moving once a year because I just didn't want to pick them up anymore. And I would, I'm looking at my, my Mint accounts, just trying to pull some statistics out of it, and it's telling me that I spend an average of $10 a month, but that includes something in May last year, oh, which was my Oculus Rift. Gotcha. So that <laughs> messed with the average quite a lot. Skew your figures just a bit there. Yeah. But my habit is whenever I it's like, Ooh, I would like that. I put it in my shopping cart and then I close Amazon or whatever website I'm on. And the next time I come and I think oh, I need to go on Amazon and buy toilet paper or whatever. Yes. I buy my toilet paper on Amazon, even though the grocery store is two blocks away.
1: No judgment. No judgment. We order our diapers and wipes exclusively from Amazon.
2: I do mine through WB Mason. We get industrial sale. <laughs>
0: yeah. I don't have nearly as much quantity as you need though for the diapers. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Uh, And I'll I'll notice, I'll go to my checkout, like, oh, I still got that thing in my shopping cart. I wonder if I still want that. And I sit there and I think about it. And 90% of the time I say, nah, and I delete it. And that just... Waiting a while, never making an impulse purchase really, really cuts down on how much I'm spending. And it helps that, you know, I don't really have a whole lot of a social life at the moment. So I don't have anybody to play the board games with. And whenever I run a role-playing game, as I've been talking about, I'm going all the way back to Iron Crown Enterprises. I've got all that material and it's 30 years old. So <laughs> I don't actually spend a whole lot on my hobbies. Now, I've... spending on my furnishing to support the hobbies has been a little higher lately. I was talking about my trying to build the game room. I didn't go ahead and, and get the big hobby table. I wanted one, but I decided to settle for a couple of card tables instead. You know, we've all... What I did buy was... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, who doesn't? What I did do is I got s- some strips of iron that I'm going to screw into the wall so I can hang my maps up with magnets. Smart. Very smart. But that's only like... 30 or 40 bucks to buy everything that I need to do that, including the tools.
1: I bring up the whole thing about budgeting your geek interests because there's a lot out there that can draw our interest and make us want to whip out our wallets. Whether it's collectibles, movie tickets, games, board games, video games, card games, you name it. There's a lot that we can be dropping cash on. Back in January, the Sci-Fi Channel's website, they published a survey asking people about their genre-related spending habits in the prior year. They had just over 1,100 responses, so not a huge cross-section of geeky humanity, but it does reveal some interesting things. Like, one of the things that these people mostly spent their money on was comic books. Hmm. They said that a lot of the people spent up to $35 a month on comic books and graphic novels, while some of them were even shelling out 50 bucks a month or more and most of the people who took the survey had on an average of two streaming services which i've got three but we don't have cable so we just have internet and we subscribe to netflix hulu and well i guess you could say kind of two and a half because amazon prime video comes with your amazon prime account uh, what else was shown in the survey? Conventions or popular destinations, but less convenient. The people who did go to conventions say that they spent 86 bucks in 2017 on convention tickets. Some spent more and uh, up to like 300 or more on related travel and accommodations. Toys and collectibles. I enjoy the occasional collectible, but I have to be careful with what I get because, one, I don't have a lot of room to put it anywhere.
2: <laughs> and youngsters.
1: And I have youngsters. And two... Once I've got it, okay, where do I do with it? Where do I display it? And what am I going to get? And I've said many occasions I love starships whether it's Star Wars, Star Trek, Babylon 5, and I think having a cool little model or toy or whatever of a spaceship is really cool. Eagle Moss, a collectible company, has the license for Star Trek starships, and they've been putting out some very, very highly detailed recreations of Starfleet starships and Klingon and more, and I bought the USS Enterprise-A from the original movies, and I really liked it, and I've got it sitting up on a shelf, and they've got so many, I could fill that entire shelf and another shelf and a third shelf as well with just those miniatures, but I'm refraining from that for so many reasons.
2: It's interesting, you'd say collectibles, but the game that I like to play the most is well out of print for, well, almost 20 years now. And so the books that I like to play are themselves collectibles, so that makes it an interesting market. Yeah,
1: but the, the people who took the survey responded, they spend about an average four $455 on toys and collectibles
2: annually or monthly.
1: It's like annually. It looks like annually. I oh, hope there. so because yeah, you know that geeky clothing was another one. One hundred fourteen dollars per year on geeky themed clothing, and I got a few T-shirts. Which uh, I've got quite a few T-shirts, with kind of have a geeky theme to them. Cosplay, which is getting bigger and bigger. More than half the people said they didn't spend any money on cosplay. Some of them spent five hundred or more. But respondents added that they spent an additional three hundred and forty-five per year on everything from meetups to podcasts, food at conventions, charitable donations, and more. All that adds up.
2: If they're spending money on podcasts,
0: we need to figure out how to get a slice of that. Yes, seriously. <laughs> we could
1: make dozens and dozens of dollars.
2: Although maybe they're talking about going the other way. They're spending this money hosting podcasts.
1: How that could be. That would be us because we're spending dozens and dozens of dollars. But that made me think about I don't track my geek finances as closely as you guys. One, because I'm not the accountant for my family. My wife is.
2: <laughs> Let the skills shine forth where they should. Exactly.
1: But I'm also very, very careful with what I do spend. That's why a lot of my... Four, per- what is my wife going to say about it? Yes. Yeah, that ends up usually being number one or two. But I always check with her. I'm like, hey, I saw this thing. It's kind of cool. What do you think of it? And I get her take on it. And if she's like, oh, that's pretty neat. And I know I, maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea to get it. Sometimes she'll look at it and goes, oh, that's so cool. And then I know to stay away from it.
2: Because <laughs> you'll <laughs> never get to play with it ever again. <laughs> yeah. Or
0: that, or it's going to become a birthday or Christmas present.
1: Which is why Amazon wish lists are the best thing in the world. <laughs> but I was reminded a comic strip from the online comic PVP. But He's like, hey, I, I spent, you have to forgive me. I ordered this a long time ago before we were married. It just came in. Please forgive me. And she opens up this door, and inside is a life size replica of the TARDIS. It's like, you bought a TARDIS. He's like, yes, I know. I'm sorry. She's like, you bought a TARDIS. It's like, yes. He's like, that's that's freaking awesome. <laughs> and I look to join like, I feel that that sums up a lot about our marriage right there. <laughs> and I'm thankful for that. But I do discuss if it's a purely self-purchase, like this is just going to be for me, or if she's going to get something that's purely for her, we have a very good track record of talking up the other person saying, mm-hmm. hey, I'm thinking about this. And like you said, Sometimes that might be something we want to get the other as a gift. But we're also pretty good about keeping the frequency of how often we do it and how expensive it is in check. Let me give you an example. She really enjoys calligraphy and illumination. She has gotten really, really good at medieval-style calligraphy. That is fascinating. Like 14th century German, 15th century English. Yeah, she's got a very, very deft hand at it. And she has a notebook and practice a different font, the letters, different words, different phrases. It's really cool to watch. And she also likes doing medieval style illumination. I should preface for our listeners that when someone in the SCA does something really cool and they get recognized for it with an award, that award is usually done in the style of a medieval illumination. With some beautiful paint on it, some heraldic style figures or artwork, and then the wording on it is done in calligraphy as well. And so she's been going to our local groups, ANS, uh, not ANS, I'm sorry. She's been going to our local groups, calligraphy and illumination nights, which they have twice a month. Thankfully, our group is big enough and enough people show an interest. We have a calligraphy and illumination guild. And so when timing works out, she's been going to that, and she's done a couple of awards and is trying to find time to do more, but sometimes that's hard to come by with little ones but i was at michael's the craft store not long ago on a different reason and i saw that they had a certain brand of paint buy one get 150% one off and the type of paint that they usually like to use for their illuminations is a type called gouache and gouache can be expensive especially the good stuff like the winsor newton gouache but this was also included in the sale buy one get 150% one off and so i'm going to buy her a gift so I got a couple of tubes of colors I knew she didn't have, and she said, hey, I would like to get more. I want to take advantage of this sale. After I gave them to her, I told her about the sale. She's like, is it cool if we go get more? I'm like, let's go. Hmm. This is an excellent opportunity to get some more colors that you don't have and at a really good price. So I would classify that as a geeky expenditure.
2: Uh, medieval manuscript and uh, calligraphy? Yeah. yeah, Yeah. That, uh, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, qualified. yeah
1: that's a no-brainer. For myself, I don't spend a lot on geeky stuff. Occasionally, my wife will buy me a geeky t-shirt, so I don't need to worry about that. I'm more the type who will save my money. Mm Mm-hmm instead of taking like 20 bucks a month and buying something with that whether it's you know a few packs of magic cards or a little collectible or a funko pop figure which they seem to be multiplying all the time I'm waiting until I find funko pop versions of my children at the comic book store and then we're going to have a problem but I will take that money and I'll put it aside you know 20 bucks here another 20 there and I'll save up that's how I can afford things like my custom longsword that I bought for cut and thrust and That's usually what I do.
2: Yeah. Saving up for the budgeted, like the monthly discretion that we have, if we don't spend it in the month, it rolls over to the next month. So if there's a $70 book that I want, Mm -hmm. well, I'm going to have to want it for three months or plan ahead for when 133 is released next month.
1: I'm doing the exact same thing. I'm looking at it and deciding, is this what I want to spend my saved money on or do I want to wait? Maybe get this at a later date. Maybe I'll get it as a gift and continue toward something else. I will throw in the addendum that occasionally we'll have the the out-of-the-blue expenditure. And that's usually involved if we're at a store together and we see something and we're like, that's really awesome. Or we see something on Kickstarter, like, and I posted this on the Geek at Arms Facebook page, the Highlander board game.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I saw that.
1: Yeah, I'm like, I gotta have this. So, yeah. But once again, I sent the link to Joy and I was like, kind of want this. Kind of really want this. And she's like, yeah, let's do it. So I did. But that is the exception to the rule. Well, was there anything more that we wanted to talk about on the subject of geek budgeting and expenditure?
2: I don't know. I don't know if this goes in. I'll just say it and see if it does. Uh, One of the things that I found that when people want to criticize a hobby, one of the things that I find that people saying most readily is, well, how much do you spend on that? I always find that to be a very interesting dynamic that people will want to pick apart how much does somebody spend to see if they think it's a responsible or worthwhile hobby. And it's kind of interesting because usually you don't find the price breakdown of a whole lot of other things in terms of what do we enjoy and what do we spend our time on and how do we invest ourselves. I don't really know where to go with that as a criticism, but generally our geeky hobbies are right out in the open. Here's my books of role-playing materials. And if you looked at the cover price, which I seldom have bought anything for cover price, it would look like I have spent a massive amount of money, whether that have been in the last week or more realistically accumulated over the last 20 years, whereas something else such as your cable viewing might be a much more discreet monthly expenditure. So I guess geeky hobbies tend to stick out more and raise the question more often than other hobbies where your fishing tackle is usually tucked away in your garage or basement somewhere.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And people who aren't geeks and, you know, come over to your house and see You know, your model of the enterprise or your uh, huge collection of books or games, since that's not something that they appreciate the value of, they think that any any amount of money spent on that is wasted just because they don't see the enjoyment that comes from it. Good point.
2: Um, I think that comes to the to the word that you use, which is value. Mm-hmm. To them, it is exactly valueless. Right. They, they would spend no amount of money on it. Whereas if you spent $45 on your hardcover role-playing book, well, then if you are going to get $45 worth of use out of that, then it's worth it to you.
0: Yeah, and one of the calculations that I like to make is, you know, somebody says, oh, you spent $60 on that? It's like, well, yeah, I spent $60 on this, but I might enjoy it for... 200, 300 hours, whereas you don't think anything of going to the theater and spending 14 to $20 for two hours of entertainment. Yeah. Now, right. If you break that down for entertainment per dollar, I'm way, way ahead with my video game.
2: Yeah. And, you know, if you get a six-player game, yeah, you might have spent 60 bucks on it, but you spent the 60 bucks once, and people are coming over to your house for how many years to play it? Mm-hmm. The price per hour breakdown winds up being a lot slimmer in that regard.
0: Assuming it's not like my board game collection that never gets played.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, we just got the Star Trek five-year mission, and we finally sat down to figure out how to play it. Oh no, there's going to be so much enjoyment value, even if it is <laughs> just within my family.
1: I hope that you get to play that as a family within the next month, because I'm really curious about that game, and I would love to hear a review of it.
2: Oh, I could give you one, like, right now, but I think this podcast is going to run a little bit long <laughs> as it is.
1: Save it for your geek out next episode.
2: Okie dokie.
1: Well, guys, was there anything else we wanted to talk about?
2: How much we love you, James.
1: That's a it's, given. It's lots and I, lots.
2: It's, like, way lots. You
1: can't help it. I'm adorable.
2: That's what I've been telling everybody. <laughs> I've been writing reviews about you <laughs> over the internet. Okay. <laughs>
1: That would explain some strange posts from complete strangers on my Facebook page.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you have an Amazon page. I mean, you've got five stars.
1: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I think that is going to wrap it up for us this month i want to thank you all for listening in hopefully we'll get schedules figured out and our next episode won't take so long to record just bear with us we're three guys in three different parts of the u.s and scheduling well that can be a hard thing sometimes but before we do go once again we've got to head to you mike what is our zombie apocalypse plan of the week
2: the one of the things that always terrifies us is this relentless shuffling horde that is constantly after us. Well, in this case, I have thought that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Because before the dead rise from their graves, I've already kind of started collaborating with a bunch of ethically supple morticians and so even though that casket is closed from the knees down nobody knows that they're wearing roller skate when the dead do rise <laughs> the shuffling <laughs> is not going to go anywhere terribly fast
1: <laughs> and if they do figure it out that's fine in the land of the straight road the town with the most speed bumps is king
2: <laughs> you know it's on, on places that have those hills i mean it's just a simple sidestep and there the horde goes
1: I really hope that someone from Hollywood is listening to this because Deadly Roller Skating Zombies. That's a title I can see on a movie theater's marquee. I
0: feel like Death on Wheels. Method Studios would make that one. <laughs> death on Wheels.
1: Yeah, that would be good. That wraps it up for all of us here at Geek at Arms. Thank you all for listening in. Check us out on Facebook, on iTunes, and our website, geekatarms.com. And so from James, Brian, and Mike, we want to say be safe, be blessed, and be geeky.
0: Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome.